0: there is more opportunity out there than what's in front of you. So explore, get outside your comfort zone and explore a lot more than what you're doing right now.
1: you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro and you're listening to 10,000 No's. All right. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. Today, I've got my friend D.C. Crenshaw in the hot seat. After playing football at Bowling Green State University, D.C. was working in pharmaceuticals until he lost his job in the financial crisis of 2008. He was forced to pivot. He has since made a name for himself As a food and lifestyle entrepreneur and personality, he publishes something called Fet Lifestyle Magazine out of Chicago. And I was honored to be in it a few months ago when my book came out. He co-founded The Little Diner's Crew, which is a dining club for kids that expands kids palates beyond mac and cheese and chicken fingers. He's the executive producer and host of the two-time Emmy-nominated docuseries Game Time Dine. And he really... He combined his passions. Uh, He was a professional athlete in the Arena Football League for a little bit. And he took from that world, he took his love for dining and for restaurants, and he put it all together. That is really why he's here with us. Other than the fact that my family and his family happened to meet each other on a vacation, we really hit it off. Our kids played together, and we have remained Close ever since. So, I uh, really wanted to share his story with you, particularly right now in Black History Month. We are doing our best to amplify Black voices, and DC is a friend of mine that I think uh, is a really great example and role model. For uh, anyone out there listening, uh, regardless of race, uh, but I wanted to put them on in February. Um, before we get to DC, just wanted to mention if you dig the show and you like these themes and you feel like you need a little push or a little accountability, uh, we launched the 10,000 Knows Insiders Community. You can go check that out. There's a link in the show notes for it. And you can also just go to 10000 noscom and look for Insiders Community. There's a little video in there explains it in a little more depth. But basically, it's kind of taking this podcast and making it 3D for you. Uh, you're going to be in there with a group of like-minded people, a lot of creatives, filmmakers, actors, but there are also executives and uh, attorneys and uh, you know, high achievers, different age group Um, I thought it was going to be all young people. It has actually been a bit of a mix, which has been really incredible because people are not only being held accountable, but they're finding this community of people with different skill sets, different levels of their careers. And so everybody is kind of contributing. So if you want to be a part of that, check it out. Essentially, it's a private Facebook group into which I put content throughout the week, but really the bread and butter of it is a live weekly call on Sundays with myself and the rest of the community and every month I bring in uh, some high achiever to address whatever the theme is of that month. Uh, a lot of times it's a past guest it's a friend of mine that's that's done uh, a lot with their life and they really uh, are are offering huge value in a really intimate setting. In the meantime here we go DC Crenshaw.
0: Growing up in a small blue-collar town, there was nothing around but, you know, football. That's what that's what the town was all about. And so every baby boy that's born in Masson, Ohio gets a football put in their crib. Uh, so I was born to play football basically. But um, that town was all about winning, right? So if you if we lost one game during the season, that was a bad season. Right. So I grew up with the mentality of, of winning, you know, is, is a must. And, you know, you, you, you have, you know, you, you have to be uh, the best and, you know, whatever you're doing and um, and then, you know, competition and all that stuff. But um, so I kind of developed that winning attitude uh, as a kid growing up. um, And I, always knew that the, the heroes that I, that I saw growing up were those that were the high school football stars, but were also smart. Right. And they, uh, not only do they excel in athletics, but they excelled in academics. And I knew that I wanted to, uh, be that guy. I wanted to go to college. I wanted to play football and I wanted to play professional football. Um, because that's, you know, that's what I saw. That's what I grew up in. Wasn't a lot of culture, As I think back, there wasn't a lot of culture in my town as far as, um, you know, understanding what a Latino was, or uh, even um, understanding what Judaism was, or Jewish folks, or the Indians, or, you know, we had a couple of Asian kids that went to our school, but it was more, less black or white, blue collar town. Um, And so, uh, you know, growing up, uh, you know, I was uh, fortunate enough to get a college scholarship to play football at Bowling Green State University. And obviously that was a, that was a different experience uh, of itself because now I'm meeting guys from all different types of, of walks of life, um, you know, that some were rich, a lot of them were poor, poorer than me, uh, you know, middle class. Uh, but we all had one common goal, and that was to, you know, play football and win games. And, and we were all student athletes, too. Um, a lot of them were more, more athletes than students. <laughs> and uh, But I was, I was always, uh, you know, into, into the books and, and things like that. Again, that school didn't necessarily have a lot of culture either. Um, and you only, I only knew what I knew because it was a small uh, college town in Ohio. Um, and most people were from small towns in Ohio and, uh, and so, you know, or, or Michigan or, you know, Indiana or the Midwest. So, you know, it was mostly, you know, black, white, um, you know, you had some, uh, some Indians, some Asians, but, you know, there wasn't a lot of culture, I guess you can say. Um, but then I, 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 uh, studied biology pre-med, not because I really wanted to be a doctor, it's because, that's what people said I should be. You know, I, I didn't have any other experience. I don't really know what I wanted to be, but, um, you know, my academic advisor was like, you know, you're smart. You should, you should be a doctor. And I was like, okay, I'll be a doctor. (laughs) And then when I graduated, I really didn't want to be a doctor. So I got into the pharmaceutical sales industry. And that's where I realized, you know, that I had, uh, I had the gift of gab. I had, I had good selling skills. I had, I love being around people. I love building relationships. Um, and, uh, you know, I was a hard worker, Uh, uh, you know, I had a great work ethic, but, um, there was always, uh, something more that I wanted. There was, you know, corporate America just wasn't, wasn't enough. And, you know, my cousin and I, who he's actually my brother, but we're cousins and we're the same age, you know, we started our first business together actually right out of college selling t-shirts. And then um, and then when we, uh, oh, he was playing football, he had a trial with the, the Browns and I was playing arena football, I had a trial with the Lions. When we hung up our cleats, you know, we lived together in Columbus, Ohio and we started a uh, another business and it was basically a, uh, a, a student athlete consulting type of business where we created this guidebook called Preparing, Performing and Achieving. It was really a guidebook to help uh, parents and their students, as student athletes uh, learn the process of how to go about getting an athletic scholarship to college. Um, and, uh, but you know, that was like a, a side hustle when I was unemployed, to be honest with you, just coming out of college. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I, I got into the pharmaceutical industry and and uh, my career, uh, you know, went from Ohio to
1: Michigan to Chicago. Um, Let me me take you back. Let me, sorry to interrupt, but I just want to pause you for a second. We just went through a bunch of, a bunch of ground. We covered a lot of ground. And I'm curious to something you said from early on, you said when you were younger, the guys you looked up to were high school football heroes, but they were all also academics. So I'm curious as to where, that came from was that what like what were your parents views on education did you have siblings and where were you in the pecking order and how did that all play into your philosophy that was sounds like you had your eyes on the prize with football but you you also had something else so where do you think that came from
0: well definitely from my parents so i had i have an older sister She's three years older than me, um, and th- my parents always were about our academics. You know, my my dad went over our homework every night. Uh, you know, even when I was in high school, you know, we had to show them what we had to do, and academics was academics was absolutely number one in our household. And uh, you know, both my sister and I did you know did well in in high school, A's A's and B's. Um, but, you know, that, you know, that was instilled in us at a very young age. But also, you know, there was, uh, you know, I I, remember, I always remember that I had a one of my favorite teachers. Her name was Mrs. Green, my third grade teacher. And she told uh, my mom and dad, she was like, he can be anything he wants to be as uh, as long as he, you know, applies himself. He has, you know, he has the intellect to, to be whatever wherever he wants to be. And that always stuck with me as well. My parents always remind me of that. But, you know, when it came to, when it came to me being, uh, uh, looking up to the guys that were not only good athletically, but academically, I saw, I saw the respect that they got from, you know, others in the community, I guess you can say, uh, not only, you know, for the athletic prowess, but for their smarts. And, um, and then, uh, you know, they were, uh, and they did they well, and, and they, they were respectful, and uh, they were respected. And um, I always aspired to be who they were when at that young age. I think I was probably in elementary and junior high when I saw that. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen someone That you know, that you met, and you'd be like, you know what, when I get that age, I I hope I'm I I like to be like them, you know. And so, uh, I I had always had that vision, always had my eye on the prize. And you know, it was, you know, there was, um, you know, there was a time where you know, my parents were going through a divorce, and you know, we were staying with my grandmother, and uh, you know, I as I think back it was more of an unstable environment that, that I had been in, you know, living wise and my grades started to drop, you know, and, but then, you know, my dad made sure that that didn't happen. You know, he was like, look, no, that's, that's not going to happen. I was so glad that that, you know, that, that, that happened because I, I, could have easily went to the left. I, I, I tell a story about my three best friends growing up in that small town. Um, Uh, and all of them went to prison and one of them got killed. And that was a, that was a small town. They all went to jail, but the common, the common denominator is that they didn't have a strong father figure in their life. And, um, and, you know, as I look back on it, you know, I did, and I think that's
1: one of the reasons why I was able to excel as well. What year were you how old were you when they were going through the divorce? was it like seven I was, I was
0: eleven twelve years old yeah uh, eleven uh yeah, twelve and uh you know i was I was at that age where I'm just about to be a teenager and uh you know I had you know I was hard headed you know I wanted to hang out with my friends who weren't doing their homework after school um, you know, I, I think that's when Atari first came out, you know, the first video games and they were playing video games and I wanted to go and hang out and, uh, you know, and, um, you know, my, my, my grades started to slip and I, re- I remember that clearly. And it, it was, uh, it, it, I could have, uh, I could have followed that ship and, um, and went down the wrong path as a lot of my friends did.
1: How did your parents get you or your dad? It sounds like maybe maybe more so how did he keep you in line was it did you fear him or respect him or both or a combination or what was the the parenting um uh technique
0: well it was a combination I mean I I, you know uh, my, my dad was definitely disciplinarian so and you know if you ever met him he can be intimidating if you see him you know he big dude you know um and uh but it was, it was um, you know, it was, it was both, uh, you know, and, and I kind of, you know, raise my kids similar where that, look, I'm not your friend, all right? We, this is how things are going to be. Uh, this is not a democracy, it's a dictatorship until I say otherwise. Um, but, you know, you have certain rules. There's certain things that you are going to do. And there are certain things that um, uh, that you you have to do that where, where, that I'm not going to tolerate, and so you know being a disciplinarian was was huge, and that that reflected on uh, and how my upbringing, how I performed in high school, in college, and you know, and how it affected me through life. I'm I'm a lot more um, huggy filly with my kids than my dad was with me, and uh, and I I wanted. I wanted that, you know, with my kids, uh, because first of all, it's important, uh, but you can definitely have that balance of discipline and being, uh, you know, loving and, and stuff like that with your kids, and so I think that's important.
1: Let me ask you, when over, over uh, quarantine, when the, the riots were happening, you and I, we did something that you led, actually, that was a virtual kind of meeting of the minds of a few people. Um, it was. It was uh, during the protests, and there was, you know, race was as it always is, but it was really uh, brought to the surface. And we had a conversation about it. And you mentioned something on that call of I don't know how old you were, but but something where you were kind of thrown against a car, and it was kind of like you were just driving by, and it was really based on the color of your skin. I'm curious as to your the makeup of your town growing up, were, were you, uh, a minority there? Was it, uh, were you like one of only a few black guys that you played football with or what was the situation and how did that form you, um, in terms of, you know, race and just sense of self and all of it?
0: Yeah. So I, I, I we were definitely a minority, but it wasn't, uh, It was probably 55, 35 percent, 55 percent white, 35 percent black or something like 45 percent black um, or, you know, even probably 60, 40 or something like that. But, um, you know, we all went to school together. There were, uh, you know, more white kids in the classroom than black kids, but it wasn't it wasn't a lot of it wasn't any any racial tension like that. You know, Mm -hmm. it, it was We all grew up with each other. We all knew each other. Now, there was some, you know, there was some racism that happened that you experienced. But, you know, I didn't go to school feeling like, um, you know, I was, I was, uh, you know, racist. I was going to school for racists. Um, But, you know, the football team, you know, we had a, uh, you know, uh, there was more white kids on the team than black kids. But, you know, we all, Played together. Now, you know, I can tell you, growing up, you know, there was always still a sense of, um, look, you know, people discriminate against you. People look at you differently because you are um, black. And I I can tell you, you know, this. I'm glad you asked that question because being a student athlete, you know, that was a black student athlete that, uh, you know, that was looked at not only for athleticism, but academic, that was rare in my town. And that was another reason why I wanted to excel, you know, because I did see a, a few guys that were older than me, way older than me that excel. they were black, and I wanted to be like them. And, uh, and I also wanted to be a role model and set example, you know, for my little cousins, my younger cousins. Um, but, uh, you know, but yeah, my You know, my town, um, you know, as I look back on it, you just kind of you just kind of go with it. There's a lot of things that, you know, my parents told me as it related to racism and things like that. And I can tell you in, in athletics, there was a sense of being a black athlete. I had to be 10 times better or two times better than the white guy that I was going against, unless I wouldn't get the opportunity. And so that also fueled me as as a person, not only in athletics, but, uh, you know, outside of athletics, when I got into corporate America, as I I always have to be, you know, on top of my game if I'm going to truly get that opportunity.
1: And do you feel that that was. Perceived that was in your mind, or that was based on what you had seen prior to that? Like, of, of who, like, you've seen other guys that were maybe same talent, and nine times out of 10, it would go to a white guy? Is that, or, or, well, or yeah. yeah. Well, we'll, we'll put it
0: like that, I've, I, I've seen it, I've experienced it myself, I lived through it, right? And, um, and a lot of times, I don't even know if coaches or people um, truly think that way, but I, I, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know if they truly understand they're doing it consciously. Um, and, but I just remember when I was growing up in that small town, there were rarely uh, all blacks, all black guys uh, playing at the same time uh, in the, in the backfield, right. Playing running back. There was really never a black quarterback um and you know there there was always uh, you know talks amongst the black community as far as they have seen in the past before i was growing up some disc- discrimination as it related to the the, the the black players you know versus the white players you know um i i, I just you know when i was in college i remember you know, I mean, it was a, a little bit different, but there was still some nuances of that, uh, even when at, at the college level, where I felt that, well, I know that, uh, you know, there were some black athletes that were better than the, the guys that were playing the same position, but they would stack the two black guys behind each other to make them compete. Uh, for the position when they were the two best guys on the on, on the team type of thing. So,
1: interesting. Yeah. And, and what position did you play, by the way?
0: So in, in college, I played linebacker. Uh, and uh, and uh, you know, I I mean, I'll, I'll tell this story, and it's true. Um, and you know, me and uh, one of my uh, one of my teammates, we were both playing linebacker together. And uh, but we were the two best linebackers, inside linebackers on the team. And, but they were making us compete against each other. And, and, you know, it wasn't until another teammate of ours came to us and said, you know what, you guys should go to the coach and tell him that you guys should want to play next to each other, not compete against each other. And, and we were for the first time we were like, you know what, you're right why are we competing, competing against each other when we should be playing beside each other? And, um, and, you know, we went to the coach, the coach was kind of taken aback by it, but it ended up happening. We both ended up starting,
1: you know? And, and did you, did you take those lessons? So the, you talked about your high school coach who was instrumental in kind of the program at the high school level. What were some of the biggest lessons you learned from that coach, Coach Brown? You talked about earlier. Oh,
0: well, well, Paul Brown is was was he 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 was back like in the forties, so oh, he didn't oh, coach oh. me. Our, oh, our stadium, our stadium is yeah, our stadium is named after him. So I just I just I gave you the context of how big high school football was in our town. Yeah. But you know, um, you know, the, the the person that influenced me the most, in my first coach was my dad. So um, you know, he's the one that really uh uh, was my coach throughout my career as it related you know especially from when I started playing when I was you know 10 years old all the way to high school um but he never blew smoke up my ass right so he always told me I better earn whatever I get and if I got a lot of press he was like don't read your press don't think don't get the big head um, but you know, just stay focused and and work hard. He would tell me when I did good. He would tell me when I didn't do good. And so you know, he was really my first coach and the and the coach throughout my career. Um, even when I got to the professional level, as far as um, you know, keeping me uh, uh, keeping me grounded, but also not not you know not um, encouraging me. But, um, you know, also uh, doling our praise when when that was uh, time to do so.
1: When you were getting toward the end of Bowling Green, were you thinking, uh, OK, I want to play in the NFL at that point? Was that the was yes. that the plan?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The plan, obviously, you know, I wanted to play in the NFL. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, I didn't get drafted. Unfortunately, I didn't get a free agent tryout. And I was I was hurt. You know, I was I was pissed. I was hurt. Uh, because I knew that I could play in the league or at least you know get an opportunity to play Uh, and I saw other guys that were getting opportunities that I knew from college and um, you know it was I I was I was pretty ticked off but then um, you know I had I arena wasn't even on my on my radar until you know the they came and, and called and I went down and tried out. And, uh, they was like, we want you to come back for training camp. And I was like, well, I think I'm going to be an NFL training camp. When that didn't happen, I went to the training camp. And so, but it was, you know, it was, it was cool. It was a good transition. I, I was still able to play, uh, the game that I love, you know, I, I didn't make a lot of money, but I, I was my first job out of college. Um, and, uh, and then it allowed me to actually, I did have a trial with Detroit lions, you know, the year later, but, um, And then, you know, it was it was time to hang them up because it was at that point where I knew that I was going to chase. I could either chase a dream or utilize the degree that I earned. Um, And it was at that point where I was like,
1: now I got back up with this college degree. So how do you make that decision? Because a lot of people that are listening to this show, they're going, you know. That's a big question you get all the time. Like, when is it? When is it right to? You know, you talk about perseverance, resilience, all of that. But when is it right to make the pivot? When is it right to maybe surrender on one thing and put your energy into something else? How? What were the What were the criteria for for making that decision? Like, there's you know, you hear the story of Kurt Warner. It's like he was—I don't know how old, 28—and he's, you know, stocking groceries or something, and he gets a call, and he goes, ends up being MVP of the Super Bowl, you know, that kind of thing. What right. was, was it hard to walk away, or did you get to a point where you said this is definitively what I need to do? I need to step away. And yeah, it, it was hard for me to walk away,
0: and it it happened after I think season two. Um, I, I was. I was headed into a training camp with, um, actually, I, I was had a tryout. My agent got me a tryout with the Lions, and it was uh, right, it was uh, at that particular time, the head coach of the Lions was a guy named Wayne Fox, and his brother had just passed away. And so they postponed me coming up for the, the workout, the training camp. They postponed it, and um, and so I was continuing to work out and uh arena football camp was 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 starting back up and so the uh, head coach of the arena team was like hey why don't you come to our training camp we'll let you leave to go up to the lions and you know blah 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 and so I was like cool so the first day of arena football training camp I pulled my hamstring and I was I was supposed to go up to the lions like two weeks later I called my agent I was like I pulled my hamstring I was like I don't think I'll be able to go up and he was like, he said he called on me, it was like they still want you to come up. And he was like, So go, but when I went up, I was, you know, 70%. And you know, I didn't get a contract. And then um I ended up uh let getting getting let go of the arena team. And it was at that point, I was my like, year out of college. My mom and dad was like, look, you got your college degree, you know, why don't you why don't you utilize that? And um my cousin, my best friend was living in Columbus. He had just hung up his cleats and he was working for State Farm. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to hang them up and uh, and start trying to find a job. And that's what I did. I wasn't 100% sure I wanted to because I knew I could still play. But, uh, you know, some stuff happens for a reason.
1: you know? And so you get into sales, you work in pharmaceuticals. How long are you doing kind of that corporate Path before you start to veer off into I know you said you had the other thing on the side. So you had an entrepreneurial spirit even back then, but you're doing primarily the, the more of a corporate path. When do you start to veer into a lot of the things that you're doing now? I know you're involved in charities, I know you're involved really in the community. You've got you've kind of brought your football background into the mix with Game Time Dine, to me, it feels like you've taken a bunch of your different passions with culinary interests and and football and melded them all together in a really, I, I, I think, interesting way that seems to be succeeding. And I'm curious, like, how did you, What what was that path? Because again, people that listen to this show, some of them are in a, they they feel like they're on a hamster wheel and they're trying to get off. And I'm so I'm curious as to how you did that because you kind of got off of the uh, more of a beaten path, a conventional path. What what was that like?
0: Yeah. So you know, so in the farm sugar industry, I uh, moved from Ohio to Michigan to Chicago through promotions. But while I was in the industry, I really uh, developed this passion for finding restaurants and, uh, and finding good restaurants. And I would introduce my my friends to these restaurants because I had to take doctors out and wine and dine them and things like that. And so I developed this passion. So I moved to Chicago. Chicago was the biggest city I ever lived in. And they had all these great restaurants that nobody knew about. So when I moved here in 1999, you know, I was just going out every weekend as a single guy trying to find these restaurants. So I decided I was like, you know what? There's a lot of people don't know about this about these restaurants because there was no food network back then. There was no food centric things happening back then. So I created FET. And the whole idea was it was a dining club that introduced restaurants to the, introduced people to the newest restaurants and restaurants to people that love to dine out. And so um, I, that was a side hustle. I still had my pharmaceutical corporate gig, but it was my creative release. And I ended up develop this, developing this great following, and became known as this food guy that connected people to different restaurants uh so much so that when Barack Obama was uh he was a friend of mine back in the day in Chicago he was his, he was a state senator when he decided to run for United States senator he called me and was like DC I got to put together this big fundraiser and so he tapped me to kind of lead in, in uh um, finding a place for his for his big fundraiser back in two thousand and three, uh, and and then so we did that, and you know he blew up, and now he was he was president of the United States, <laughs> but um, and so uh, you know so that was like my uh, entrepreneurship in Chicago, but then you know let's fast forward uh, to two thousand and eight when you know I was uh, Elena and I were pregnant were uh, pregnant with our first our first son True. Um, I lost my pharmaceutical gig and, um, and that was the time when the recession was happening and, you know, I was looking for a gig, looking for a gig, couldn't find a gig for over a year, you know, and I had to figure out something. I had to do something. I wasn't getting hired by people. There were no jobs. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to go all in and just focus on what my passion is. And that was in the restaurant you know, seeing as far as doing what I was doing. And, uh, and so um, I started my own video blogs where I would actually create these one minute uh, video blogs about the newest restaurants that opened. And they would, you know, it would basically highlight the restaurant, the chef, the food. And then, uh, you know, it started to get some traction. People started seeing it. NBC locals saw it. And they asked me to start contributing to their station. And uh, and then after that, I had some people reach out to me about some Chicago Bear players that um, they wanted me to feature on my vlog. Well, I was trying to figure out a time to how to get these guys involved. And literally one day I was working out in the morning. I had an epiphany and game time dying came to my mind. And uh, and I was like, I'm an ex-athlete, you know, and a lot of people you're an ex-athlete too. And so, you know, when I was in corporate America, there were people that just wanted to talk to me about football, but I had all these other interests that I was, you know, that, that I was involved in and not just football. And, uh, I was like, there's a lot of these guys out there that are athletes and they're just not a basketball player, football player, baseball player. They have other things that they're about. And so I created Game Time Dine as a way to get to know who these guys were away from the game. I talked, uh, you know, I I pitched the the idea to a couple people, in particular, a guy that was uh, a cameraman who worked for NBC at the time. He shot some things that I was doing. I didn't have any money to produce the show. Um, So he he agreed to shoot a pilot, uh, you know, to be involved. And we pitched it to uh, a local um, Comcast Sports uh, Network. They loved it. And the show was on the air. We shot ten episodes the first year with no money at all. And then um, I took that season and went to sponsors uh, the following year. The following season, we got Coca Cola. I'm sorry, Pepsi. And we got uh, Mini Cooper to sponsor the show. And then I was able to shoot season two and pay pay uh, pay for the production. Um, wow. So that so that's how that happened.
1: And then and, they, and was it was it Emmy nominated uh, as well?
0: Yeah, we got Emmy nominated twice, you know, the second, the second uh, season, um, you know, I didn't really know anything about how the Emmys work and the, the, you know, one of the producers on the show was like, we should submit this show for an Emmy. So literally I was at an event and I got a text from one of the guys that was on the committee and said, dude, you just got emanated twice, uh, Emmy nominated twice. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so, uh, and so, you know, that I was very proud of, uh, uh, proud of that,
1: Yeah. You know? And what, and so what I like about that story is that it comes out of and I and I don't know if I knew that part of it that it came out of two thousand eight and everything that was happening in the world and people losing their jobs and and that you came off of a, a you know a streak of a year of unemployment I I love the necessity of it and also that you're doing something that you love and you figured out how to make it work and then talk to us a little bit about how that. Uh, I'm not even sure of this, but I I imagine that the the little diners that you do, and I'm not even sure if I'm getting the the name correct there, but the that what you're doing for kids now in relation to dining is an extension of Game Time Dine, I would imagine.
0: Well, um, you know, when we had kids, my wife and I uh, had kids and my wife grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, she had more of a cultural experience as related to food. Than I did growing up uh, and uh, but we both shared the same passion as it relates to dining out and we introduced our kids to the foods that we eat and so Little Diner's crew came about because we went to restaurants uh, and we would look at the kids menu at these nice restaurants and on the menu were mac and cheese and chicken fingers for these kids and we were like you know well, you got to have better food than this because our kids kind of ate what we ate. And then we would have um, parents that would compliment us for seeing our kids eat the food that we ate at these different restaurants and would ask us how we got our kids to eat these type of foods. And so, so you know, I was like, Elena, we, we got to do something about this. And so literally, that's how Little Diners Crew was born. Um, at first, we called it Little Diners Club. And then we got a cease and desist letter from Diner's Cup in America. So we had to change it to Little Diner's Crew. <laughs> so that's how that's how it became Little Diner's Crew, because um, we couldn't fight the big boys. And uh, and so we uh, so we literally came up with the idea of, of expanding kids palates beyond mac and cheese and chicken fingers by hosting these unique dining events where. Um, we feature a different country each month, and then we find a restaurant that serves that country's cuisine. And then we partner with the chef to create a tasting menu of about four to six dishes that the kids and parents will, will both try. When the kids arrive, they sit at their own table and they have their own experience. The parents sit at their own table and have their own experience. But the kids meet the chef, they learn about each dish, how the, how the food is made, where ingredients are sourced. And they uh, get a chance to rate each dish they try, so it really empowers them to take over their whole dining experience. And um, you know, uh, parents that bring their kids that are picky eaters, it's amazing to see how kids are more likely to try a food when they're sitting around other kids that are trying the same type of food. So it's you know, it's it's it's, it's it, you can be deemed as an extension of of fat. Uh, the dining club that I created, uh, but, you know, but more for kids because we're really turning picky eaters into little
1: foodies. It's great. It's such a great concept. And it, and I also think that part of what probably helps to change these kids' minds about the food is when you speak to the chef and you hear about how it's made or what it comes from or, or the process, I think maybe that opens their minds up a little bit of, Oh, okay. I'm seeing him mix this together with this, or I'm seeing her, you know, pour this into this and, Oh, okay. I'll try that. Um, there's just, it's kind of a educational and also encourages people to be a little more, uh, you know, brave in terms of what they're going to eat. Um, you talked about FET. Mm -hmm. So you have FET lifestyle magazine of which you, uh, or in which I should say you, you put me and I appreciate it. And what I was, what I want to talk to you about is it was, it's so well done, you know, the, as the book came out for me, there was a lot of different press that that's happened and your magazine uh, digital magazine. It was, as I looked through, not only the the story that you did on me, which I was so appreciative of because it was um, you know, it, it, it really, it was well done, and the entire magazine. Though I was just kind of blown away by the level of uh, the photography in it, the the variety of the stories in it. And my main question to you is one that that how do you do that? Do you outsource a lot of it? And two. Before we wrap up, I'm just curious to me from the outside, it feels like you do so many things and you do them at a pretty high level. And I'm curious what you think is your special sauce strategy to be able to accomplish, you know, in different areas. They're all related. But how do you do it all? I mean, because it seems like you're doing a lot.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good question, and uh, you know, I get I get to ask that question a lot. Um, you know, first of all, and you know this, being an actor, and just being who you are, anything that you do or anything I do, I have to do at a high level. You know, it, 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 there's no sense of me doing anything if it's mediocre. You know, there's a lot of mediocre things out there. And maybe that stems back to my childhood where, you know, my, my parents always said, if you're going to do it, do it the right way. You know, don't do it half ass. And, uh, and I tell my kids that even when it comes to cleaning or homework or stuff like that, reading, if you're going to do it, do it full steam, do it, you know, do it the best you can, because, um, you don't first of all you only have one time to uh, you know make an impression and you know if someone like yourself is going to Fet lifestyle magazine and maybe I have a bad issue right it's not that it's not up to the level of what I normally do and you just read that one issue you be like oh yeah that magazine is eh, it's okay you know it doesn't it's you may not go back to it um, and uh, you know so but anything I that I do, I try to do the best that I can, and I try to do it better than best. And I I, I always research. Before I started Fed Lifestyle Magazine, it was – so it, I used to have a newsletter that I sent out. And it was just a newsletter that talked about events and stuff like that. And I started that newsletter 20 years ago before a lot of people had newsletters. But now everybody has a newsletter. So, you know, about six, seven years ago, I was like – you know, it's not really doing anything. It's, it's just a newsletter. So what can I do? What can I do to take this to a different level that no one else is doing? So that's how Fet Lifestyle Magazine came about. And then I was like, you know what? I want to have all female contributors. And, um, and because first of all, I think um, a lot of women out there were looking for a platform that, uh, you know, to, to talk about things that were passionate that they were passionate about and didn't, nec- weren't necessarily, um, journalists, you know, they weren't really bloggers. They didn't really know how to get started. And so uh, as I, I gave them that opportunity and when the magazine first started out, it wasn't, it wasn't what it was is right now. I mean, you know, there were some, you know, I got feedback. I got, um, some, you know, criticism about or constructive criticism. And over time, you know, I, I, it kind of morphed into what it is today. Um, but, you know, all the things that I do now are connected. So, you know, Fet Lifestyle Magazine is in a lifestyle space. Little Diner's Crew is in the the lifestyle space. I'm a partner in a, a new tequila brand called Quintero Negro Tequila that's in the food and lifestyle space. So all these things are connected. Where I used to, <coughs> excuse me, get pulled away on a project or an opportunity that was totally disconnected to everything else I was doing. And one, I was either going to focus on that and then neglect what I was, what my passions were, or I was gonna focus on what my passions were and neglect that opportunity. And I was always neglecting that new opportunity that had no connection with what I was doing. So now I keep everything in my will space and all these things are interconnected somehow that allows me to do these different things.
1: Yeah. What about advice for, um, you know, somebody who's, you know, the the world is different now than, I mean, in many ways, it's different regarding race now than it was when you got out of Bowling Green. Um, But obviously, as we've seen, it's like still as much as things have changed, things have not changed so much. What's your advice to someone who's coming out minority, not necessarily black, any it, it, minority of any, what, what, is it, what is it that your advice would be in terms of that specifically? You know, I, I uh, anticipate this will be released during Black History Month. I'm just curious as to, you, you know, what your advice would be, say there's a college grad coming out and maybe even more specifically a student athlete uh, college grad coming out into the, into the real world. What, what is your advice to them? Well, you know, whenever, uh, I, I always
0: say this about anybody, <clears throat> um, make sure that your stuff is tight, right? I, I don't care if you're black, white, Asian, uh, you know, um, Indian, whatever, you have to make sure that whatever, uh, whatever you want to do or whatever you're trying to do, it's your, you know, you're, 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 you're tight, uh, and I mean, uh, you know, by tight I mean that your stuff is, is on the, uh, on the A level type of, of surface. You know, you have to be uh, tight in whatever you want to do. Um, I would also, my advice is to, um, if you want to, whatever you want to get into. I would try to learn as much as possible about, you know, that that craft, that that position, that industry, and uh, and then, you know, research it, um, try to identify exactly where you want to be. Uh, You may not know what your, you know, five to 10 year uh, plan is, but try to, Understand exactly and articulate exactly where you, where you want to go, what you want to do, and maybe try to find someone that can uh, be a mentor that will help you. You know, get you get you to a certain point and introduce you to some folks. Um, you know, being a uh, you know being a minority today, I think, can have its advantages as disadvantages. Right now, I think being a minority is is more of an advantage just because of all the things that has happened over the last year. But I would never go into a place to say, hire me because I'm black, you know, and I would hope no minority would approach anything like that. Um, You want to be hired or you want to, uh, you know, um, get awarded uh, a role or whatever you want to do because you are the best. Um, And my thing is I've always lived by, I'm going to make it so hard for you to say no. Uh, You know, I'm going to be so tight. I'm going to make it so. I'm going to make it hard for you to say no. Now, I've been I've been tight many many times, and I've gotten told no ten thousand times. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that um, you failed. It just means that means no for right now. Uh, But never ever ever stop. Never ever ever give up. As you know, you have to keep. You have to keep going. Um, no matter, look, there's, there's so many days, how many days did you want to just give up man and just quit There's, you know, being an actor, being an entrepreneur, there's so many days that you're just like, what am I doing? Why, why am I doing this? You know, why, why don't I just go get, I'm trying to find a job. Why am I doing this? And, but it's those days where, you know, something good happens and, you know, people recognize you or, or whether you, you know, you, you land a deal or something like that, or you get a role or you, that you're like, you know, this is why I'm doing it. So.
1: Well, it's funny because I was going to segue into the final three questions. And in a certain way, you almost jumped into my first question, which is I'll ask it anyway, but you almost answered it already, which is the word no means what to you?
0: The word no means to me it means fire because when someone says no to me, it just lights a fire in me and I'm going to figure out exactly how to get it done, um, no matter what. So that's just, that's just fire to me. It it lights a fire. It it does something to me when someone says no, and I'm just that much more determined to, 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 to get it done.
1: Yeah. Um, What about a mantra? Some some type of not in the sense of uh, meditation mantra, although it could be that. But uh, is there any phrase that that you lean on in times of real distress that gets you through it? Just a life philosophy? Yeah.
0: Mine is if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. Um, And, uh, you know. and, And, you know, think about all the challenges that that we've gone through and you change because of those, right? And so if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. Um, Because I I truly think that change happens through adversity and through uh, facing adversity, facing these challenges and
1: persevering. I agree. I think that's probably why you and I hit it off as quickly as we did when we met because we bonded over a similar philosophy on that. Last question, if you could give your younger self advice, when would you intervene and what would the advice be? Well, That's a good question.
0: Uh, You know, I probably would, if I can give my younger self some advice, I would probably go back to my early college days or when I first graduated from college. And say, you don't have to follow the normal path where, where the traditional path that people may want you to go. Um, there is more opportunity out there than what's in front of you. So explore, get outside your comfort zone and
1: explore a lot more than what you're doing right now. Do you think you would have taken that advice or would you have been like, get out of my face?
0: <laughs> I actually would have taken that advice because, you know, what, what I realized and I say that because, you know, when I, when I when I grew up, it's like I said, you only know what you know and you don't know what you don't know. Um, you know, I grew up in a town and where uh, in, in an area where, you know, people went to college, you got out, you got a job, you get married and, you know, you, you do that thing there's a whole nother world out there. Um, You know, I didn't know exactly what my strengths were uh, until I became, you know, in my thirties. I didn't really know what my passions were until I, you know, I was in my thirties. And, and then I met, uh, I met a lot of great people when I moved to Chicago and I met, I learned, you know, about different cultures and different businesses and things like that, which I did, I wasn't exposed to. And so, you know, I think with uh, I think with exposure to a variety of different things, could would maybe I could have done a lot more things sooner than what I did.
1: Well, well, you've done a ton of things, as I see it, and and maybe I don't know if it feels that way on the inside, but from the outside, it certainly looks like you're you know really moving the needle in a bunch of different areas. So um, I'm very grateful to have you on the show. D.C. Awesome. Crenshaw, thank you, man. Thank you for sitting down with me. And it's, it's a pleasure to hear more of your story.
0: Hey, man, thanks for having me. Congrats on 10,000 no's. You're killing it. Killing wow. it, brother. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Me, uh, I'm proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise, right back at you. What we do here is go back, 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 back. Okay, here we go. As we do it every week, the top three takeaways. Number one, Everyone will tell you to find role models and mentors, but add something to that. Envision yourself as a role model for others so you can focus more on service and be less self involved.
0: Being a student athlete, you know, that was a black student athlete that, uh, you know, that was looked at not only for athleticism, but academic. That was rare in my town. And that was another reason why I wanted to excel, you know, because I did see a few guys that were older than me, way older than me, that excelled, that were black. And I wanted to be like them. And uh, and I also wanted to be a role model, and set example, you know, for my little cousins, my younger cousins.
1: Number two, sometimes God's plan for you is better than the one that you came up with. By the way, if the word God doesn't jibe with you, feel free to substitute it. But this is the way I see it. Either way, DC's post-recession career sounds way cooler to me than what he was doing in 2008.
0: I lost my Farmer's Hugo gig. And um, and that was the time when the recession was happening. And, you know, I was looking for a gig, looking for a gig, couldn't find a gig for over a year, you know, and I had to figure out something. I had to do something. You know, I wasn't getting hired by people. There were no jobs. So I was like, you know what? I'm going, to, I'm going to go all in and just focus on what my passion
1: is. Number three, take the thing that drives you nuts about your current situation and flip it on its head. That's how D.C. created an Emmy-nominated TV series.
0: You know, when I was in corporate America, there were people that just wanted to talk to me about football, but I had all these other interests That I was, you know, that that I was involved in and not just football. And uh, I was like, there's a lot of these guys out there that are athletes and they're just not a basketball player, football player, baseball player. They have other things that they're about. And so I created Game Time Dine as a way to get to know who these guys were away from the game.
1: All right. As always, thank you to all of you for listening. I hope you got as much out of this conversation as I did. Thank you, DC Crenshaw, for taking the time to sit down with us. Uh, It is really a pleasure for me to get to sit down and talk to all these people every week. Uh, If you guys dig this, please share it with your friends, put it on social media. You know what? If you can take five minutes and go leave us a great five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be awesome. It helps other people see the show, share it on social media, all that stuff. Uh, it's always appreciated. I hope you dig it. And uh, remember again to check out the 10,000 Knows Insiders community if you're interested in that. And at the very least, you should sign up for the newsletter for the uh, Monday Morsel newsletter, which is every. Monday in your inbox. And then there is a slightly different audio Monday morsel on the feed. If you want to uh, check that out, usually eh, not too long, five, 10, sometimes 15 minutes of uh, solo riff on topics that pertain to the show. That is it. We will see you Monday and then we'll see you again next week with another full length interview. Take care.